I'm Beth Ricciani and welcome to Frontline Stories of Change. I'm a social worker, a founder of a social enterprise, Care to Dance, and now a podcast host. I'm excited to speak to some amazing people and organisations who share our mission to bring about social change and make a real difference to the lives of children and families. You will hear their stories and advice and I hope join in the conversation as we learn together along the way. So today I spoke to Mark Riddle. Mark Riddle is the National Implementation Advisor for Care Leavers at the Department for Education. In his role, he advises the government on national policy issues, as well as senior teams across local authority children's services. Mark shares his journey from being in care himself to working for the Department for Education. Throughout his career, Mark has always advocated for young people in care and has pushed for changes in the care system so that young people are better supported and have a fair start in life. He shares what inspires him and his thoughts on how practitioners can lead change and also how they can support young people to lead the change that they want to see for themselves. I hope you enjoy this episode and if you've enjoyed the series so far, please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and all other major platforms. Thank you. So, hey Mark, how are you doing today? I'm good, I'm good. Um, how are you, Beth? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. I, love, I do love the Scottish background that you've got going on. <laughs> well, I do my boss. I, I live in Manchester, but I'm born and bred in Aberdeen and any chance to look at Scotland or get back to Scotland, I'm, I'm always back up there. So, Oh, amazing. It's such a beautiful um, country, isn't it? So many lovely hills and mountains. <laughs> yeah, it's fabulous. And, and there's nothing wrong with the whiskey either. I can't say that I'm a whiskey fan myself, but <laughs> I've heard great things. <laughs> no, it is great. Whiskey and haggis, if you like them, that's the main oh, thing. Haggis is good, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Um, it would be really great to hear a bit more about yourself, uh, your journey, and how you came to work for the Department for Education. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, thanks for... For, for doing this. I mean, obviously, I'm Mark Riddell. You know, I'm the National Advisor for Care Leavers um, in the Department for Education. Um, I mean, the journey, I mean, social work's a fantastic journey and it's a fantastic career, and I've advocated that for a long time. And I started my career not in, not, not, well, in social work, but I started off with adults with disabilities in 1988. So it shows a little bit of my age. I'm not so young anymore, but um, and in 1988, I started off working with adults with head injuries in an assessment centre in Aberdeen. So for, for adults who'd had a car crash or a brain injury or a stroke of some type. And it was my first touch of social work, I suppose. I mean, I, in those days, I wasn't qualified. I was unqualified and just trying to work out my way, I suppose. Um, and I remember going for my first interview um, in the adult assessment centre and um, And I took five key skills with me and there were skills that I got because my early childhood was was checkered by living in family um, and going into care when I was 10 and was in care from 10 to 16 up in Aberdeen. Um, And I learned an awful lot about care. I learned a lot about how to how to be a bit of a look after yourself, how to understand how you're feeling how to reflect on stuff that's gone on, how to look at your history, 
how to sometimes be a voice for yourself and for other young people and to be a leader um, and to communicate well. And when I took those things, you know, I didn't really necessarily think that right, I'm going to take those five or six things into an interview because they were already me by the time I was sort of, you know, 20 years old in 1988. So going for my first interview um, was just for a temporary post for six months um, and it was just a little bit of a try to see whether I had the skills to do it. And the person who interviewed me um, was absolutely blown away and just said, you've got the skills to do the job. You haven't got a piece of paper and you haven't got a degree or a qualification, but the key skills that you've talked about, he said, where did you get them from? And I, I said, I got them from my care experience. You know, it takes a little bit of time to harness them. And when you're 15, you're not really harnessing them. And you're quite angry and sometimes aggressive or a bit pissed off with the system, excuse my French, but I mean, that's how a lot of young people feel about it sometimes. So when I took those skills into the workforce, they paid off. And I knew that I was probably going to be in social work at that point. I'd done other stuff. I'd been, I'd worked in a fish factory. Um, I'd worked um, in a florist. I'd worked in a nightclub as a bouncer. Um, so I've done a lot of those things. And some of those, I mean, being a bouncer takes a lot of skills sometimes in negotiation with people who've had a lot more beers than I'd had at nighttime and you've got to negotiate your way through some difficult situations. And we do that with social work sometimes. So the skill base, you can see that I was ready. And I made a conscious decision to leave Aberdeen a long time ago because growing up in care in Aberdeen, it's a, it's a big city, but it's not big enough to hide if people in care who knew you. So being a social worker in Aberdeen probably wasn't going to be the best journey at the time. So I, at the same time, I was due to finish my contract. I went on a, um, I went on a holiday to Tenerife um, and bumped into my wife um, at the time. Obviously, she wasn't my wife, but you now using my skills as a bouncer to try and chat her up and stuff. And we ended up, um, you know, basically falling in love, I suppose, in some senses. And, you know, instead of me moving to another city in um, Scotland, I moved to Manchester and been here for the last 30 years. And I started my first job in social work in 1991, sort of two or three years later, in residential kids' homes. So I started off as a residential childcare officer um, and got on remarkably well with the kids because, you know, I was on a couple of years from some of the teenage kids that we had, the 15 and 16-year-olds. And that grounding was fairly important because I sort of knew within five years of doing that that you probably needed to qualify in social work. And in those days, there wasn't the degree in social work as such. It was the the dips were that I'd replaced the CQSW and the CSS in the old days. And the dips were was the social work qualification that most people could get to get into social work. So I made a choice that I wanted to get in and change practice from the front based on, based on stuff that I'd seen in residential, but based on the stuff that I'd learned as a young person in care about the system, just felt as though the policy wasn't right and it needed the right people to be in there pushing policy. So I'd made that decision in 1995 to qualify and it took me two or three years to qualify and did a degree at Oxford as well, a postgraduate um, piece of work around um, management and certificate and performance management at Oxford Brookes University. So that topped up my diploma to a full degree. And then I started thinking, how do I change the system? Because I was looking across the system. A lot of the work I did was generic social work so the generic social work before the new assessment framework came in probably over 15 years ago 
20 years ago was around that you as a social worker you did a bit of everything so you did a bit of fostering did adoption you did children in care you had a couple of young people who were leaving care a couple of young people in custody four or five kids in foster care a couple in kinship care and then to cut a long story short you know i've really stuck with children in care and care leavers since probably 2000 and sort of maybe 12 13 um and you know, any opportunity that I've got, I've tried to stay. My last authority was Trafford, which is in Greater Manchester. And I was the children in care and the leaving care manager um, in there and managed to get the first start standard for care leavers in the country under, under the under the single inspection framework. And that was because, A, I, I knew what I was doing. I wanted to change policy. I knew what it felt for my kids to grow up not in a care situation, but to grow up in my house. And I took what I learned from my kids and what I did with my kids and my care experience into work every day that I did and just said, I don't think that's good enough for our kids. And if it wasn't good enough for my kids, then why should it be good enough for children in care and care leavers? So that naturally, the Ofsted inspection naturally got me noticed a bit. I mean, although I always worked in government for the last 20 years because I was involved with the Leaving Care Act, in 2000, but with changing governments and stuff, I sort of dipped away a little bit. And Edward Timpson decided that he would take an interest in the Trafford experience, wanted me to come to Westminster, talk to him and spend a bit of time with civil servants, looking at the new legislation which came in in 2017. And those three bits of legislation are, you know, a better approach to corporate parenting, the local offer, which is now a a legal duty for local authorities to have in place, and that care leavers now get extended services to 25. So those three things are the things that I did with my own kids. I was always trying to be the best parent that I could, and I wanted local authorities to step up to doing the same thing. Um, And also my kids knew when they woke up every day that when they were going to school, they would have a uniform, they'd have food in the fridge, they could switch a light on, they could turn on the hot water, and they would get access to hot water. And I would be around with my kids for as long as they wanted. And our care leavers and children care can't always say that. So the principle of what I do now as as a national advisor um, is basically those three principles. So that's how I got the job, basically, at DFE, which is a fantastic post to be in. That's an incredible journey. Thank you so much. I think there's so much that you sort of said during that time that I think we'll come back to. And you said like a lot of important things. And I think a big theme that came out from what you were talking about is the importance of empowering young people who have experienced the care system um, to lead on change. Um, and it's so important because they're the ones who are living it. They're, they're you know, the they've got that lived experience and and they have so many great ideas. Like, so I, I'm based in a looked after and even care team myself and the young people I work with um, are incredible. And they come up with all sorts of different ideas where how we can change the systems that we can change and um, and things that, you know, I wouldn't think about or other people might not think about who, you know, aren't, aren't living in within that sort of care system at the moment. And. Um, I'm wondering sort of how ourselves as practitioners and social workers, what advice could you give us in supporting young people um, who are maybe in the care system themselves or who have left care? How could we support them to lead on that change? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we introduced, and it goes back a lot of years ago, and we shouldn't have really needed to introduce it, but things like children in care councils and sometimes they're a little bit formal and it's the kids that are in foster care. They get involved with a virtual head and they get involved with children in care council and they go to the children in care awards and all that sort of stuff. And all that stuff is good, Beth. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's really positive positive start but there's so many children and young people especially the older young people where some of the processes that we've got 
are really quite formal, you know, and, you know, we have to live within formal structures because that's just the nature of how we do it. But that doesn't mean to say that we don't ask very different questions to get to get to the answer we need to get without it feeling like a like a bit of a formal process. So for young people, certainly as you get to 14 and 15, I mean, I hear young people telling me all the time, and we've heard it, you know, nationally as well through lots of research, that young people still feel a little bit as though they're not listened to particularly well. And I think we've got to, we've really got to talk to young people about what the difference between hearing what a young person is saying and listening to what they're saying, because they're two different things. And I think I can listen, I, I can sit and watch TV and I, I can hear the TV, but I don't always take on board what we're saying. But I think we've really got to get social workers and no disrespect to social workers or professionals, but we do go into sort of hearing modes sometimes. What I think we've really got to just think, hang on a second, you know, if this young person wants to talk to me, am I in tune? Am I in the right place? Am I worried about quickly running through this visit so I can get to the next visit? Have I allocated enough time? So have you given the young person two or three hours to talk through something that's been really tough? Or have you said to them when you walk into the meeting, look, I've got to be out of here in 10 minutes' time and you know, we'll have to just run through this really quickly? Because all those things lend to me, lend to 10 young people that you're in a hearing mode. So when they say something and you walk away, they come back and say, I'm not sure that my social workers listening to me. I'm not sure if they are. And, you know, there are some really good practice around about how you deal with that. You know, we've got to have, the system has got to change a little bit and we've got to give some priority to listening to young people. And that means taking some time to do that. And I've been there, Beth, I mean, years ago, now, when you're running from visit to visit or you get stuck in a traffic jam and you're 20 minutes late for that one, you've got another one to get back to the office for. And, you know, then on a Friday afternoon, you want to get back because you've got to write everything up for the weekend. And that young person gets 20 minutes rather than an hour. So there's something about doing that informal sort of bit by making sure we listen. And I think the second bit is to make sure that we reflect their views and the plans that we do. You know, sometimes... It's not totally reflective. You know, what have you achieved? What do you want to achieve? And I was an IRO for only for about a year and a half as we moved around services about 10 years ago when I was in um, another Manchester authority. And one of the things that I always tried to do was at the review was to say to them, what do you think you've achieved? Tell us what you've achieved. You know, and giving it back to young people so they could say, well, actually, I don't think I've achieved enough, but I want to achieve more. So how do we do that then? And then do the professional bit afterwards. So there's something about just listening to people and being in different spaces that I think would definitely help. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. And I can see how the looked after reviews, and this is actually something that we're doing in our local authority at the moment, talking about how we can change this, because a lot of the times you probably remember within looked after reviews are very formal and very and it's thinking who are we doing that review for is it it, it well it, we know it's for the young person but actually it doesn't reflect that in the way we sometimes have the review and something we're working on at the moment is the my plan so they're creating their own plan which is yeah, so important definitely. and I think that's you know there's definitely like ideas that are I think coming out but you're right there's definitely also a long way to go um in sort yeah. of and I think, Beth, there's other stuff that we can do. I mean, certainly in foster care, I remember, you know, when I worked in Trafford, you know, we tried to make sure that in the children care reviews that, you know, as they got to 15, that we began to focus the reviews on health, which was really important, 
on education to a certain extent, but the virtual head could do some of that sort of stuff and the school had responsibility. So we didn't really want the social worker to get lost in some of the stuff that other professionals could actually do. So we'd maybe say to the social worker, step back a little bit and allow the other professionals to case, case manage those particular aspects so that you've got time then to begin to get into the detail of where's this young person going to live when they turn 16? Are you going to go home? Are you going to go and live with aunts and uncles? You know, or are you going to stay in foster care? Are you going to stay put? Are you going to go to college or university? Because many young people say, you know, I said that I couldn't cook. I said that I could never fill a washing machine. And I said that to me foster carer. But it was never included in my pathway plan or never included in my, my children care lack review that I wasn't able to do these things. And I didn't, I didn't just felt that I wasn't listened to. So there's something about focusing that bit into our minds because you wouldn't want, I mean, my daughter didn't move out until she was probably nearly 25. But by the time she left my house, she was able to do the washing machine. She could change a plug, light bulbs. She could put a shelf up. You know, she knew the basics that the stuff that we kids leave care and end up in semi-independent accommodation, not even been able to make pot noodles, you know, just it's just strange, really. So we've got to do something different about making sure it's not just about the formal stuff that we listen to them about, but some of the other stuff that will be good for them in later life. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think what you said around, you know, if it wasn't good enough, if it's not good enough for my children, why is it good enough for our children that we care for? Um, I completely yeah, agree. That's a really good way to look at it, I think, because then you're actually giving yourself um, a human reflection, I guess, if you like, around what, what work we're doing with that young person. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's it's almost like if you haven't got kids, what do you do with your niece and your nephew, you know, or your grandkids and stuff? So there's there's a huge amount of skill out there, but we've become a bit too formal with it, a bit going back to what I said before about formal systems and processes. And sometimes, and again, it's a bit of a cliche, sometimes you've got to get back to the basics, I suppose. And, you know, what do you want for this young person? And say to the young person, this is what I think we should do together. Let's go and do it. And that then kicks into whose role is it to do it? You know, is it a social worker or is it a personal advisor? And there's a bit of a a bit of a discussion in this in the sector about, you know, maybe the social worker, yes, if you've got a social worker who will stay with you until you're 18 because you're on a full care order. Um, then you'll have a social worker to your 18. My social worker will do some of those statutory stuff. So the social worker needs to explain to the young person, these are the bits that I'm going to do. This is this is my role. Is that okay with you? And sometimes we just say, actually, Johnny, this is my role. And, you know, if you don't like it, then it's tough. But, you know, young people have a view. So then you've got to work out if that's the social worker's responsibility, then what's the responsibility of the personal advisor? And I always talk about personal advisors that they've got the other bit of the job to do is to, they're really good at looking at housing benefit and universal credit and housing applications and independent living and going down the town and getting bits and pieces. And social workers would like to do that as well. And some social workers do, but sometimes you've got to give that to somebody else to do. Not, not because they're unqualified, just because you've got another worker who is far more specialist because You've got more time to do that rather than worrying about sort of working with a young person who's disclosed that that foster care has slapped them that morning at seven o'clock in the morning. The social worker will see that as a priority, but not necessarily going and buying a kettle for a young person who's 17. 
So there are very clear differences, and we can work those out very easy in local authorities. Mm-hmm. And that's actually really relevant because this morning we were talking about um, how we can work as social workers with personal advisors much like closer um, between the ages of 16 and 18. How can we work together to really prepare that young person for approaching their 18th birthday, but also to start that um, journey much earlier than 16 as well, because it can be quite daunting, I think, for a young person in care thinking, well, what's going to happen when I'm 18? Even at 12, 13, you know, they are they could be thinking about that. Some might not be, but if they are, it can be super daunting. Yeah, and I think some of the stuff that I talk to local authorities about, to be honest with you, Beth, you know, although I talk about a lot about care leavers, I mean, care leavers are children in care before that, or they're a child in need before that, or they're in early help before that. You know, so there's a journey that they've come through. And I would hope that certainly IROs and social workers, you know, I like the IRO role because it's got scrutiny, it can challenge the local authority if there's delay in plans, you know, and they can push social workers and managers to think about decisions um, in a different sort of way. But I think social work... I think so. I would like social workers to think in exactly the same way that they have to challenge themselves and they have to challenge the local authority that they work with. And there'll be structures how you do that through your senior practitioner, team manager, and your service manager and stuff. But also with other key agencies, you know, I don't hear and I never had a lot of conversations and the work I do with local authorities around, you know, I would like virtual heads to get involved with young people. And they do educationally, but I want them to get more involved with young people when they're 14, when they've got their pathway plan or the pep, the, the, the pep at 14 and their lack review coming up. And I want the virtual head to ask, um, you know, to ask our young people in care, you know, whether they felt that, um, what did they want to do when they got older? So what was their ambition? And instead of just thinking, well, it could be college or university, you, know, you could be thinking, what's the offer to the young person from the virtual head team, from businesses or from community or from the local authorities, the family business, and begin to question, you know, because I would always say to my kids when they were 10 and 14, when they're at primary school and high school, what do you want to do when you're older? And if I had avenues to a football club or a rugby club or a cricket club or a swimming club or a pottery club or whatever, if I knew somebody in any of those places, then I'd be saying, hmm, let's see if I can get you into one of those places just for a bit of work experience or a Saturday morning or a Saturday afternoon job and stuff. So there's something about challenging that and giving young people choices when they're 14. It's really tough when you're saying to a young person who's just come into care at 17, who's second and third generation, always been unemployed. And not to say that I've got ambition or they want to do better, but it's really difficult to move from a position of, well, I'm better off on benefits type stuff. You could offer a young person a choice of 20 jobs that day. Take your pick. Which one would you like? I just think it just makes a massive difference. So there's something about social workers going back to virtualizing, challenging them, saying, what are we doing with businesses? What are we doing with the local authority? Because local authorities, you'll know, Beth, in your local authority, you'll have 20 or 25 departments in your local authority, all who could offer an opportunity to a child in care or to a care leaver quite easily. You know, so if 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 the young people see that as an offer to them through the family business, what they'll see is a good set of corporate parents, somebody who's interested in me as a young person. So that can follow them all the way around to being, being care leavers. And we know that the biggest thing, obviously, for young people in care um, is having role models, 
people that they can aspire to, corporate parents who can do things better, health offer that's in place, you know, and good opportunities for education, employment and training. When those things are absent, and I see it in a lot of local authorities, Beth, that we just leave it to other people to do or go and find a job yourself or go and walk, walk around the industrial estates or go down and claim a universal credit. They'll tell you how to get a job. It's not really my responsibility. I mean, this is everybody's responsibility and local authorities, I still think, need to take a lead in that responsibility. Mm. And I think that would be a really good, because I guess it's thinking about how we can, so that we have a number of ambassadors and thinking about how we can really use um, the different roles within local authority um, to support young people, care leavers, ambassadors to um, build their skills and confidence. Because I think something that comes up quite frequently, and you might remember when you were a social worker yourself as probably as well with um, young people and we can throw as many opportunities and say, you know, there's this university, there's that job. And and sometimes I think it's quite daunting for a young person. And I think if they sort if there's sort of an internal barrier there, yeah. if there's they lack that confidence, then really how do we support them to overcome that barrier first to then embrace the other opportunities there? And I guess through like the family business, thinking about how we can support them within local authority, that in itself could be a potential solution yeah. um, as well yeah. as many others no definitely and you know when i visit local authorities and i've been to probably around about 60 local authorities out of 152 um 40 of those were quite big two-day visits um and when i leave those two-day visits and say to i mean leicestershire city for example um, i said to them and um, they were concerned about their education employment training numbers that their care leavers figures were around about 50 percent and I said, but that can't be good enough for you being, you know, in, in the family business. And I said to the director, how many businesses have you, how many, how many departments have you got in the local authority? And he said, I don't know, about 20. I said, what kind have you got? And he said, well, we've got recreation and parks. We've got a recycling centre. We've got the local tip. We've got the water people. You know, we've got loads of stuff going on, planning, legal, architects, everything, loads of administration. Take your pick. I said, so why don't we give a pick to our young people then? Why don't we just say to each of those departments, give me one opportunity of something that we can give to the virtual head or we can give to the leaving care team? And he did it. And seven months later, when I spoke to him, and he's now moved on to Stephen Forbes, who's a DCS, he's now gone to a London authority. But when I went back to see him, he said to me, he's got 20 job offers in the family business. Um, and he said it's paid at national living wage because we decided at the highest level that that was going to be a really good way to get a good income for care leavers. And he said we didn't create these vacancies um, out of new money. These were existing posts within the whole council. So if you're in a children care service and your manager comes along and says, look, we've got to find the post for a care leaver, you're going to have to lose a social worker or a personal advisor. And local authorities are just not in a position to do that. But if you brought 25 council departments together and looked at all their vacancies, because most of them will probably have vacancies somewhere, and it's going to be tough during COVID with vacancies and other bits and stuff and recruiting people and stuff. So there will be money sloshing around. And to pay a care lever in one of those places, you know, you might say, like, for example, you've got a, a legal executive assistant that you haven't been able to replace for six months. I mean, that's a £45,000 post. So you'll have £20,000 sitting somewhere that you haven't spent yet in the legal legal department. You could use that to pay a care leave, a national living wage, 
to work in the parks and recreations department, and it would cost you £16,000, and you'll still save £4,000. So we've got to think about this in a different sort of way. And I do think social workers, it takes a bit of confidence to do it, is to question your team manager, you know, or to get social workers to get team managers to ask the question at corporate parenting boards or at children in care councils, what's our offer from all the other departments in the council? Can we have one, please? And you'll find, Beth, that people, people want that. And when I give the examples I've just given you, people say, we can do that, but it would take me a number of years. You know, I've been to, say, 40, for example. So if there's me going to another um, 110 local authorities, and I did 40 in two years, it would take me another 10 years. So I need social workers to ask that question, you know, and to get it formally represented in lack reviews and decision and get, get the young person to know what their offer is. So... There's a huge amount of interest in doing it, Beth, but I just think sometimes we lose our way sometimes in social work and we forget some of the soft stuff and we get lost in the really complex stuff and we've got to make the complex easier and the soft stuff even easier. That's the answer, really. Yeah, I, I, that's yeah. I think that's really a really good way of looking at it. And I think sometimes I think you're right. Within social, as a like within a social worker role, you can get caught up in all like the things that you need to be doing, the processes, the day to day. And actually, we need to like you're right. We need to start thinking like and reflecting and thinking outside the box. I think thinking this creative way. Actually, it's a lovely. It makes sense. It's logical, and it and it really matters to the to young people. And I think this could be a really good way of overcoming any barriers, supporting them in the transition into employment, education. Um, but it's it's almost something that needs to be also like, like you said, I guess questioned and challenged, and so like to f- formulate a systemic change. Um, I mean, something we're thinking about is working because um, I run Care to Dance as well, which is a um, a dance group for children in care. And um, we're looking to take on a couple of ambassadors um, within Care to Dance. And I think if we yeah, could up with community groups to do the same thing, that could be huge. And I think it, but I think it just needs to maybe be sort of thought about and questioned and looked into um, a lot more, I think. Um, yeah, no, definitely. And I think the thing, I mean, social work has changed, Beth, in the last 30 years. And we went from generic social work to specialist social work. And, you know, we are where we are with it. And the idea behind the social work role was really for social workers to become almost like case managers in some sense. So they would pull in the specialists. So CAMS to work with young person around their emotional well-being and some aspects of mental health, foster care to come in and offer somewhere for young people to live. You know, we access some community resources, which at the moment is fairly stretched and quite difficult. And being a case manager only works, Beth, if you're not the social worker doing everything. You know, so you're doing the referral to really complex adult transition services or you're doing the referral to mental health services. You don't always understand some of the criteria or the threshold to get through those services. And we've seen those changes at the front door with single assessment teams who would then become multi-agency teams. So those thresholds by police and by health visitors and by community midwives and by hospitals and by social services that threshold is fairly understood. But as young people get older, you've got social workers spending three or four hours filling in a form to adult services, and they get told they haven't met a criteria. Well, you know, tell us what the criteria is then before we even start. So there's something about adult services, get involved 
a lot sooner. Don't wait for me to defer it at 17 and a half, because if you're going to tell me in three weeks' time that I don't meet a threshold, then I've wasted an afternoon where I could have spent that three hours with a young person going for a cup of tea and having a sandwich and, and talking to them about different stuff. So come in earlier, you know, get adult services to come in at maybe 14, at 15, to begin to talk about, well, I'm not thought that young person is going to need an adult service, but they might need community-based services or a different response. I'm beginning to show a clear pathway that is an adult transition so that I'm not spending months chasing adult transitions to try and get a decision made. And a bit like mental health, you know, filling in mental health referrals that go to clinical commissioning groups, and you wait two months to get a response that just says, sorry, no, you're not going to get a service. Well, you should have told me that when they were 15 and not 17, you know. So there's stuff we need to just get a little bit better at and allow social workers, you know, to manage some of the risk, which is really complex, to support young people in CSE or crossing county lines, you know, sharing the risk, I suppose, but being clear that it remains 90% of the time with social work, but with other agencies, but making sure that other people are accountable for decisions that they made about not getting services. So there's a lot to be done. And your example of doing the community-based stuff, you know, is is the bit we shouldn't forget about, because although there is limited resources, there are still some really good projects out there that can support children care and care leavers in a different way that isn't statutory social work. So we've just got to not take our eye off the ball. Really, a hundred percent, and I, and this is something that I think is a frustration. I think as a social worker, is the whole you're getting referrals not back and things like this. But actually, it's when you start thinking outside the box and thinking, okay, what community services are there, or what services can we create? Like, what groups could we create and thinking creatively? Because actually. When we think about statutory mental health services, for example, they do amazing work with lots of young people, but also lots of young people find their one-to-one counselling uncomfortable and it's not for them, but they might get in a, being biased here, but get in a dance studio or get on a football pitch. And Yeah, and no, definitely. That could be their form of therapy. So no. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I and there's also out. something else, Beth, about, you know, young people are always telling us um, that, can you not bring services to us? So there's something about leaving care being almost like a hub as such, where the young person has already got an established relationship. And, you know, someone from maybe um, Universal Credit or someone from DWP could come down and do a surgery down there, you know, maybe at a tea time or maybe on a Wednesday morning, you know, for young people that are on Universal Credit and looking at job offers. You know, it's quite daunting sometimes for care leavers who've sometimes got professional anxiety of going in into a new service and having to tell their story again, or you've ticked the box that you're a care leaver. Can you tell us your history? And you go, well, no, I'm not going to tell you my history. And when they walk up, they're treated as a DNA, as a did not attend appointment, and the benefit would be stopped. And you sort of go, but that's a bit of a nonsense. So they've got to share the corporate payment and responsibility like everybody else. So why don't we have someone from DWP coming down to leaving care, someone from adult transitions, instead of doing a formal assessment at 17 and a half, meeting the young person when they're 16 and spending two hours with them and just having a chat and a cup of tea with them and getting a little bit to know the young person. And I think we've lost that bit a little bit, that everything's become really quite formal. So if somebody doesn't go for an appointment, an adult services appointment, then they're struck off the list. Well, you know, these are our kids. 
you know, so we need a second appointment, a third appointment, and a fourth appointment. And every time we go, we'll get the social worker or the personal advisor to work really hard to support the young person to go to the appointment, but bring the appointment to the young person for a change and just see if that makes a difference. And I'll guarantee you, it will make a difference. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think you're right. Everything is so formalised. And I wonder what advice you could give to our listeners who maybe, who maybe want to like try and challenge this system and trying to make it a lot less formal. And alongside that, to bridge the gap between young people and care or care leavers with, um, with governmental bodies, how can we make that process much less formal as well? Yeah, no, it's a mixture. I mean, we've got the care review obviously coming up, which um, the chair of it, um, Josh McAllister, who you know is is from Frontline and um, knows a lot about social work. And, you know, I'm hoping that there'll be a very broad look at social work. So the kids at the point of entry into care, because the secret to care really is stopping kids coming into care. And we've seen a huge dip in preventative services. So something about, you know, we've always known that prevention is better than cure. You know, so preventing young people coming in. But there will always be, unfortunately, you know, in many countries in the Western world, there will always be kids coming into our care because of family and dysfunction or deprivation, neglect or anything else. So that will always be the case. You know, we've just got to make sure that the system can cope with that much young people. So I'm hoping that the care review will look at, look across the whole piece. And I'm hoping that there'll be a good look at leaving care. I mean, we know that the Children's Act 1989 is probably one of the best pieces of legislation, you know, ever written. It's still very good today. It still promotes rights. It's still about best best interest. You know, decisions by children are paramount in court decisions, you know, and the planning. But we've got the Leaving Care Act that sort of came in in 2000, and that supports, obviously, Volume 3 of the Children's Act in some senses. But the legislation from a care leaver's perspective has has become quite grey. You know, 20 years ago, we talked about young people being um, assessed as being eligible, former relevant, qualifying, um, and that enabled us to gauge whether they would get a leaving care service in those days up to 21 to start with. And then we extended education duties to 25. And now we've extended all duties to 25. But the legislation still is really quite complex when you've got young people who are coming into care at 17 and a half who've never been in contact with a local authority. What sort of service should they get from the leaving care service? Should a young person who falls out with his stepmother or stepfather, for example, and knocks on the door of the local authority, never known the local authority in his life, we look after him for 13 weeks um, and he gets a full leaving care service up to 25. So there's there's those things we've really got to have a look at. I mean, that 17-year-old, yes, they should get some sort of homeless prevention package. Yes, they should get support to try and get them back home to family. And yes, they should get support to look at whether there's any connected people around who can take that young person into a home where they live. And if they do need to come into care, then is it a leaving care package or is it a different package that allows them to find accommodation more appropriately and they get a grant that isn't a leaving care grant, but gives them a grant to buy white goods so that they're not coming back to the local authority for support ongoing. And then when they've done that bit and we've got them somewhere to live and we've mended some of those relationships that we say, that's us done, that's that that's social work done, but not necessarily leaving care. 
you know, so there's a huge amount that we need to think about in the sector. We'll be interested to see what people's views are around that as the as the review takes shape. So I'm fairly excited about the care review that we will see, you know, 15, 18 months down the line. I'm hoping that we will begin to see, certainly in leaving care, a multi-agency response. I would like to think that we will see that that's the best sort of practice that we get where social workers and PAs working with young people who are 16 plus, you know, are, are, are um, a jack, not, not, not a jack of all trades and a master of none, but get back to the mastering the social work that they're really good at doing and getting PAs to be supported to take young people through complex adult transitions or mental health journeys, but to make sure every professional is in leaving care. So someone from health, someone from DWP, somebody from housing, you know, and someone from business and leisure, someone from education, employment and training. So some really, really important um, decisions to be made in the care review. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, yeah, so it sounds like there's like some things we can do as individuals to try and lead um, change as social workers to try and challenge the system and, you know, and really advocate for young people and trying to do like, I don't even know if deformalize is a word, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> try and make it a lot less formal in the system. Um, but also, like you said, there, there is this, um, there's this care review coming up and that's, that could be a potential really great opportunity um, to lead um a wider systemic change for young people in care and leaving care. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's the the bit about individual change. I mean, that takes from individual practice, really. So you would think about your own practice by spending more time with young people. But you can only do that if the other side of the business allows you to do that. And I'm just not sure whether the, the balance between the time that you spend at your desk doing assessments and filling in paperwork and doing referrals, you know, I would hope, and a good authority that the balance is 50-50 because there will always be the bureaucratic, the compliance, because you're talking about a statutory element that you're working within. So there is there is things you have to do as a requirement. But I get a sense that the balance is tipped the other way, that there's a lot more time, three and a half days to four days spent office-based and then a day and a half out with young people, obviously split over a week and stuff. So there's bits like that that I think are just little bits that get in the way, to be honest with it. So I think there's a little bit of redress or thinking how we do that slightly better. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think I could probably own up to that as well and spending way too much time on the laptop. Um, yeah, definitely. Podcast, absolutely. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mark. I've actually, it's been really interesting like hearing everything from you and I feel like I've reflected loads well on my practice. I'm, <laughs> no, like, I'm going to put that laptop away. <laughs> Yeah, you get onto the corporate conversations, you know. <laughs> Thank you.